God's system of covenants is where we are today. And uh, I want to move through this rather rapidly, the outline, and then come to some questions and hopefully answers at the end. A couple people said, you went through those overlays so fast at the end of last hour, I didn't get a chance to get them all down. There was actually a little method in my madness, by the way. Uh, all of the data in those overlays is in your reading in Ellison. All I did was take and put it in a, another form on a transparency and flash it back at you. I really wanted to see if there was any familiarity with the uh, material that I put on the screen. So uh, it is there, and I really believe that that little short chapter of 20 pages or so is an outstanding summary of the uh, biblical philosophy of history what God is really doing in history. So uh, basically, this, again, overlay in another form summarizes that. And this one particularly emphasizes this area, earth. So if I were to, in a sense, put a focal point on yesterday's uh, lecture, it would be that God intends to develop a program which shall demonstrate his sovereignty that he alone is God on this earth. So earth will be the focal point. That's really phenomenal when you think of the beginning verse of scripture. In the beginning God created the heavens. That's a huge expanse. Uh, Ten billion times six trillion miles. He created the heavens and the earth, singular. Uh, and from there on, in the scripture, the focus is not on the heavens. The focus is on the earth. Because that is going to be the center of God's visual display of his sovereignty. So though we would agree with the scientists that... Uh, the earth is not the center of the universe. Uh, there is not a, a uh, geophysical uh, centricity here. Uh, there is a redemptocentric aspect of the earth. Uh, our solar system does not have the earth as its center, but God's whole universe has the earth as its uh, center of his program. So earth becomes very, very important. Earth and the people on it. Now, we come today to the procedure that God established uh, with his creation, the system of covenants that will eventually demonstrate uh, his purpose, his sovereign purpose on this earth. And uh, we're going to try to handle this in an hour. And I want to uh, obviously just pick up pieces here and there because your reading has covered it in more detail. First of all, I would direct you to Dr. Ellison's book and particularly the chart that you have 
uh, on page uh, 28 of that book, uh, where he deals with the, uh, the seminal covenants, and uh, then he deals with the central covenant, the specialized covenants, and finally the secondary covenant. Uh, as good a, an outline as I have seen of the whole covenant structure that really forms the outline of God's program in Scripture, the covenant structure. Using that word, you need to ask yourself then, what is a definition of a covenant? On Dr. Cook's notes, page 250, you have uh, Roman numeral 2A1, the meaning of the term covenant. A covenant is a sovereign disposition of God in the form of a compact or agreement between God and man whereby specified obligations, promises, and conditions are set forth. That sounds like a very formal statement. It is. If you want to expand that uh, for your own understanding, the finest article I know of available is in Leon Morris's book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. I think... Uh, this was out of print, but I believe it's been brought back into print under another title. You can check the bookstore for that. Leon Morris, formerly The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, was the name of the book. In that book, there is a chapter beginning on page 60 and ending on 107, simply entitled Covenant. And uh, that is as full and clear a discussion as you will find both in the Old Testament, in the intertestamental period, and in the New Testament, of the concept of covenant. On, in Dr. Ellison's book, on page 27, you have as simple a statement as you can find of this. He says, a covenant is basically an agreement. It is a working relationship between two parties about a proposed plan of action. It is more than a plan of action, however, it is a personal handshake, establishing a mutual relationship of trust. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, that was done very vividly. There is a phrase, uh, uh, the word berit, by the way, the Old Testament word for covenant, and uh, there was a phrase to cut a covenant, a very, very common, popular phrase that was used when two people would make a very serious agreement. Uh, they would take an animal, divide it into two, lay the parts out, and then the parties to the covenant would walk between the pieces of the animal that they had slain. And they would say, may the same happen to me as has happened to this animal if I am not faithful to the agreement that I have made with you. I think you can get the picture. It was a rather serious uh, covenant. Uh, there was commitment there. Their life was at stake. If I do not follow through on what I have said, may my life be taken. Wouldn't that be a neat thing today if at the marriage altar we would make the same commitment? If I am not faithful to the commitment that I'm now making to you, uh, may my life be taken. I have a sneaking suspicion we would have far less divorces uh, than we have today, but I'll leave that for another course 
that really isn't eschatology. But uh, the covenant system was a very, very strong system. Uh, to cut a covenant, then, was to make an agreement that you would be faithful to. And that had a very strong Old Testament picture. Now, when we get a little further along to the Abrahamic covenant, that is precisely what happened in Genesis chapter 15. Except for the fact that in that situation, God put one of the partners to the covenant asleep. And the covenant became a one-sided, unconditional covenant. And Abraham made no commitment. God made total commitment. And God was, in essence, taking the one side, saying, may the same thing happen to me if I am not faithful to this covenant that I now unilaterally make with you. Uh, but that's getting ahead of it. Uh, suffice it to say, that was a picture in the Old Testament of covenants between men and covenants between man and God. The key word in the Old Testament, berit, that you have on your notes, the English transliteration of the Hebrew term, B-E-R-I-T-H, berit, a covenant. In the New Testament, the comparable word, the word that regularly translates the Hebrew term in the Septuagint is the word diatheke, which also you have transliterated in the notes, uh, a covenant. The concept is the same. A gracious disposition on God's part whereby he establishes himself in agreement, in covenant with man. Secondly, the and I'm going to skip in Dr. Cook's notes from page 250 over to page 252. For the time being, at least, I will not add to what has been said on the theological covenants. I would choose to reverse the order of this, I think, and deal with the biblical covenants first before I deal with the deductive concept of the theological covenants that builds on the biblical concept of covenant. So I'll skip to 252, where he deals with the biblical covenant. Roman numeral 2 on your outline, the partners to the covenant. Uh, in Morris's book, he will elaborate this in some detail. Again, suffice it to say that there were covenants between man and man, and there were covenants that were made between man and God. Uh, some of those covenants between man and God had conditions on both sides. Uh, some of them were one-sided. Uh, they were what we would call an unconditional covenant. So the covenants between man and God could be either conditional or unconditional. They could be uh, bilateral or unilateral. Uh, both parties could have responsibilities or one party obligate himself. That leads to Roman numeral three, the types of covenant. Uh, a, a conditional covenant you have defined on page 252. A conditional covenant is a bilateral agreement. 
contingent upon the faithfulness of both parties, it is characterized by the formula, if you will. Whereas the unconditional covenant is unilateral. And note those two words, unilateral as contrasted with bilateral. And in contrast to obligations on both sides, the unconditional covenant required only the faithfulness of the party making the covenant. Now, the enjoyment of the blessings of a given covenant at a particular time are conditioned upon obedience of the human party, he notes, but the fulfillment of the covenant is not. The characterization of this covenant is, I will. There is no, if you will. You know that a well-known example of the conditional covenant is a Mosaic covenant, where God says, I will do such and such if you will do such and such. Turn to Genesis chapter 19 for a moment. Notice how God addresses himself. What did I say? I'm sorry. Please, Exodus. You delivered me, Greg. Exodus 19. God addresses Israel. Verse, I'll pick it up in uh, verse 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. Be careful of the tendency to spiritualize at this point. Uh, he does not address this to the church. He addresses it to very specific entities, the house of Jacob, the children of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And he speaks that to them, and they respond by saying, all that the Lord has said, we will do. God says, if you will, I will. A conditional covenant. Uh, the unconditional covenant never has the, if you will, in it. It is simply the I will. Turn over to Genesis chapter 15 and see that. Genesis chapter 15. You have uh, the picture vividly described here. Let me pick it up in... Uh, Oh, verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, that is, to Abram, saying, This one shall not be your heir, referring to this Eliezer of Damascus who was one born in his house. This one shall not be your heir, 
but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And that statement is far more meaningful to us today, I think, even than it was to Abram then, knowing what we know about the heavens. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it or imputed it. The Romans word imputed. He imputed it, that is, his belief, to him for righteousness. So that in chapter 15, verse 6, you have a regenerate man. God is not establishing himself unconditionally in covenant with an unregenerate man. It's important that you see that. He is establishing himself in unconditional covenant with a righteous man. A man to whom the righteousness of God has been imputed. Verse 6. If you go back to Genesis 12, when God picks up a pagan man, Abram, who was an idolatrous worshiper, and he sovereignly brings him to the place that he had told him of, and then lays out before him all the land and speaks to him of a promise concerning a land and a seed We'll look at it in a moment. It says that Abram believed God. Romans expands that. Abraham believed God in spite of the impossibility of what God was saying from a natural standpoint. Uh, Romans portrays that beautifully. Sarah's womb now being dead. Uh, most women her age are not giving birth to anything. And uh, Abram knew that what God was saying could only happen by his supernatural intervention. And he believed him. The object of faith, then, was the word of God. Abram believed what God said, and God imputed that belief to him for righteousness. Uh, You can't get more pure, more clean in a statement than that. He believed in the Lord, and God accounted it to him, his belief for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldees, a pagan who had no claim on God at all, to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? God says, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two. There's your cut a covenant formula. Cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. God put the other partner to the covenant to sleep. 
Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. God prophesies the uh, dispersal of Abram's people off of the land. 400 years afflicted. Also, the nation whom they serve, I will judge. He predicts the judgment of that nation. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. That's the first uh, removal and return of Israel to the land. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there was a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Now think about that. God is spirit, not material. How was God going to visibly demonstrate his presence in this agreement? God, symbolically, uh, a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces... Verse 18, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying. Now, notice he did not make a covenant with Abram in Genesis 12. He made a promise to Abram in Genesis 12. The promise had conditions. If he did not follow the conditions of getting out of the land to the land that God had showed him, he would never have had a covenant made with him. I take it that it was God's common grace that was drawing Abraham, Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees to this land. He brought him to the land. He showed him what he was going to do. Abram believed it. That was the point of righteousness. Now with a righteous man, he establishes himself in unilateral covenant on the same day. What day? the day that is referred to in Genesis 15, 6, the day of his regeneration. On that day, he made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land, and he spells it out, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is going to be your land. God unilaterally covenanted himself with an I will. God will do what he said in this covenant. Now, that is the picture of the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant. In your outline, Roman numeral 3, capital B, unconditional, I've listed four names under unconditional, Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New. Uh, in Dr. Ellison's book, as well as in Dr. Cook's notes, you basically have one covenant uh, enunciated, and the other three as codicils of that covenant. Dr. Cook refers to them that way. Uh, the Palestinian, the Davidic, and the new statements of covenant 
are really an outgrowth of the Abrahamic covenant, which is the central feature of the covenant system. Now hold that in abeyance for a moment and move back with me once again to God's purpose for this earth. To, uh, to go back here, the overall feature is the sovereignty of God, the kingdom of God. God is king. God is sovereign. God is going to demonstrate to all created intelligence the fact that he is sovereign, the fact that he is king. God, in his wisdom, allows in his plan and purpose for a portion of the angelic hosts to rebel against him. Out of that is established a counter-kingdom to God's kingdom, which is referred to in the scripture as the kingdom of darkness, which is ruled by Satan and his demonic hosts. The, the scene of the battle is to be the earth. Now, God could have, obviously, immediately wiped out Satan upon his rebellion. That was not part of God's purpose and plan. His plan was to use that as a visual, so to speak, to teach something concerning himself. And so he establishes a program on this earth whereby he will demonstrate his sovereignty that he alone is God. You'll find that repeated all the way through the scripture. He wants to have on the earth a people that he has created and is gathering to himself that will voluntarily exhibit love toward him. Uh, he is not going to coerce them, and therefore he gives them the option of choice, and that is all the way through the earth's history. Right from the beginning, then, he does not keep man excluded from the approach of Satan. Rather, he allows his first man, his representative man, Adam, to be contacted by the kingdom of darkness and its head, Satan himself. And God establishes Adam in a garden where there is the potential of test. And he tells him of all the things in the garden he may partake of, except for one tree, in order that he may establish a test for Adam, in order that Adam may have the privilege of willingly loving God, of being obedient to God. It didn't take a lot of trees to do that. It didn't take a lot of tests to do that. It only took one. God made it very, very simple. Uh, I'm convinced that we often make it very, very difficult. God made it very simple. Of all the trees of the garden, you can participate. Just one is a no-no, because that was enough to establish the test. We know what happens in Genesis. And uh, as a result of that, God establishes a covenant, the first prophecy of Scripture. Uh, Dr. Ellison brings out it, it may not be 
truly stated to be a covenant, and yet in seminal form, he lists it as such. Genesis 3.15 really summarizes that whole philosophy of history as to how God will reclaim the realm of his kingdom and how he will redeem the people of his kingdom. The battle between Satan and Christ is portrayed in Genesis 3.15, and we see the uh, fulfillment of the promise at the cross of Christ, where now the prince of this world is judged. A fatal blow was was, uh, delivered to Satan at the cross, and the execution will yet be uh, finalized as Revelation 20 portrays it, when Satan will be cast into the lake of fire, prepared for him and those who followed him. Uh, so the, the sweep of it is in Genesis 3.15. God takes a representative man uh, as the one through whom he will begin to demonstrate his sovereignty. Uh, you move to Genesis chapter 9, and you have the Noahic covenant, where God uh, delivers to Noah the message that he will never again destroy the earth by water. Uh, He covenants himself to Noah, and Noah has a responsibility laid on him to maintain righteousness in the earth. Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. Uh, God graciously, however, uh, commits himself that he will never again destroy the earth by water. Whether Noah is faithful or not to his commission, God will be faithful to his commitment. So you have the the, uh, Noahic covenant, which is really an unconditional, gracious covenant. When you come to Genesis chapter 12, or particularly the last verses of Genesis 11, and God begins to work in this pagan man in Ur of the Chaldees, uh, you have once again a representative man. You've moved from Adam to Noah to Abram. God takes a man who has no claim upon him at all. It wasn't that God chose a good man, that God chose a uh, righteous man. God chose a pagan man, a man who was an idolater. And he brings him from that land uh, to a land that he has promised to show to him, and in that land establishes himself with him in covenant, as we have read just a moment ago. Now turn to Genesis chapter 12. (coughs) You have this uh, portrayed in the notes, and you have it in Dr. Ellison's book, and I recognize that this is What I'm saying is redundant to you, but let me repeat it, rehearse it just briefly at least. The uh, full statement in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. That was the condition in the promise, not the condition in the covenant. 
I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Uh, that promise turns from a promise to a covenant after Genesis 15:6. In Genesis 15:18, this promise becomes a covenant with a righteous man, no longer a pagan man. In the covenant, there are several dimensions, and I recognize that these are uh, different words are used by different people to express it, but let me say that there was a national or territorial, as Dr. Ellison calls it, uh, aspect of the covenant. There was a descendant or seed aspect or, national or nation aspect of the covenant, and there was a universal redemptive aspect of the covenant. The land aspect of the covenant is reiterated repeatedly, uh, and the name Palestinian covenant has been assigned to it. When you think of the Palestinian covenant, you're thinking preeminently of the land aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. When you think of the seed aspect, the nation, you're thinking particularly of the Davidic covenant. When you think of the universal or the redemptive aspect of the covenant, that which spreads beyond Israel to the, uh, all the peoples of the earth, you're thinking of the new covenant. So there is a redemptive aspect, a seed aspect, and a territorial aspect in the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, a covenant, then, as God makes it, has not only a, a, uh, an agreement idea in it, but it has a predictive idea in it. There is something here that God uh, will surely fulfill. He will specifically do. Uh, so it becomes a, a kind of a prophecy uh, for us. Notice on page... Uh, 253 of the notes. The statements that the covenant as to its characteristics, it is to be literally fulfilled, it is eternal, it is unconditional. We cannot take the time in class to go through each of those verses, but if you do not do that, you will not be as thoroughly convinced as if you do. In other words, read the passages and see the promise that God is making. He is saying that uh, this is an everlasting covenant that I am making with you. Uh, I think particularly of one statement. Let me read the, the statement in Psalm, uh, the 89th Psalm, where God reiterates uh, to, uh, uh, through uh, David, the... Um, promise concerning that covenant, the Davidic covenant. We have heard this in songs. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. That part is very familiar to us. Verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. 
Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Talking of a, a nation, a kingdom, a seed. Goes on to explain that further. And then when you get down to uh, verse 24, after he has all of this tremendous statement of his faithfulness to David, then he says, But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. And I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever. My covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my statutes, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, and there you have the word hesed, uh, could be translated covenant loyalty. My loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. You could not have a clearer statement of God's commitment in spite of David and Israel's unfaithfulness. He promises them, if you are disobedient, I'm going to whip the daylights out of you. But that is not going to alter what I'm going to do for you. I will not alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. I have covenanted myself with you. I will do it. And he is also saying to them, I will bring you to a place of obedience whereby I may justifiably do it. Uh, that is God's promise to them. Now, uh, in the land promises, God says to Israel, if you disobey me, I will curse you. If you obey me, I will bless you. Blessing and cursing were inherent in the covenant. There was no question about the fulfillment of the covenant, but there was question about the perpetual occupancy of the land. God never promised Israel that they would regularly occupy this land he was giving them. In fact, he says exactly the opposite. He tells them they will be dispossessed of the land. Now, in order to see that clearly, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28 to 30. Again, it will be advantageous for you to read the whole of, two, of 28 through 30. But in 28.1, he says, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today, 
that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. God was doing something with Israel that he was not doing with any other nation. Israel was to be a nation, a theocratic nation, a nation above all the nations of the earth. This was God's people. And what happened to Israel would be a specific testimony with respect to their God. And that's why when God does such and such with them in Ezekiel 37, he says he does it in order that all the surrounding nations may know that I, the Lord, am God. There is a purpose above and beyond Israel. God is using Israel as a people to demonstrate his faithfulness to his promise. So he says, I want to keep you living right. Therefore, in verses 2 through 14, he tells them the blessings that he will give them if they live right. Uh, and they will enjoy prosperity on the land, physical prosperity on the land. Then in verse 15, he tells them, if you don't obey me, I'm going to whip you. And it's interesting for me to observe that the blessings go from 2 to 14, and the whippings go from 15 to 68. And then they continue in chapter 29. And they go for the whole 29th chapter. That might say something about God's people. You see, it's, it's a recurring, almost redundant thing, isn't it, in the Scripture, that God speaks of Israel as you stiff-necked people. You stiff-necked people. Now, God is showing something there in the history of the earth. He is going to show you the sinfulness of sin. He's going to show you the awfulness of depravity. Now, all of those things are happening for a purpose in God's ultimate singular plan and program. So you have a, a statement of, uh, of whipping, of cursing, you get down to the end of chapter 29. And uh, uh, looking for a particular verse here. I uh, can't lay my hands on it right now. He says, uh, in the morning you will wish it was evening. In the evening you will wish it was morning. You, you will despair of living. And I was reminded of when the Jews were attacked in Munich at the Winter Olympic Games and the, the coaches were killed and participants were killed and one of the coaches' wife in responding to the reporter says, it seems that no matter where we put our foot, we are persecuted. Uh, there is no place in all the world where we can go and be safe. And that's exactly what God said. When you disobey me and I dispossess you from the land, every place you go will be an uncomfortable place. God promised them that. Now, when, when, we, when we quote that uh, every promise in the book is mine, if we want to really put that into practice, go back and take all of chapter 28 and 29 because it's loaded with promise. You may want to think it through. Now, three times God promises in the word he's going to dispossess them off the land. 
three times he promises he's going to bring them back. That Second Chronicles 7.14 that we sing very often, the reason I have difficulty with people singing that and arbitrarily applying it to the United States or someplace else today is because it misses so much of what God was saying specifically to Israel. That was a specific promise about the land. If you disobey me, I will take you off the land. If you obey me, I will bring you back to the land. And all of this will be a part of demonstrating that I alone am God and that even the hearts of the kings are in my hand. I will use pagan nations to whip you and take you off the land. Then I'll whip the pagan nations. But I'll show you that I am God, and I'll show all created intelligence that I am God. Now, a question. I wanted to get to this earlier. Didn't get there. We'll try again next time. Is God, is, is Israel today back in the land in fulfillment of God's promise? This has occupied a lot of newsprint. 1978, Menachem Begin said, There are some people who accuse me that I am founding our right to this land on the Bible. What an accusation. I plead guilty. Uh, so Begin says, They're back on that land by biblical right. Uh, the mayor of Jerusalem disagrees here with uh, Menachem Begin and uh, his claim to biblical rights the land. I want to say this carefully, but I want to say it uh, clearly. Does Israel have a right to the land today? What is the reason why God dispossessed them from the land? Was their disobedience, right? Are they more obedient to God and his revelation today than when he dispossessed them from the land? No, they are not. Is Israel back in the land today in a fulfillment of prophecy? Absolutely not. Now, how can I say that so boldly? One last verse. Deuteronomy 30. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind, where? Where? You see it? Among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. Next statement. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Does that happen today? No. According to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, three, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. When will God bring Israel back to the land? when they return to the Lord their God in all the nations where he has scattered them. 
If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Now, why must God bring Israel back to the land? Because they are good people? Because they are obedient people? Uh, no. He says, uh, you, when I picked you up, uh, were uh, like a woman destitute at the time of blood left in the street. That was his picture of Israel. I took you when you were nothing in order to show my sovereign power in you. And then you began to think you were something when you were nothing. And therefore I took you off the land until you could remember that you were not something. I brought you back on the land when you understood that. And then you didn't understand it again, and I took you off the land. Three times God promises dispossession, and three times God promises repossession of the land. Three of the first have been fulfilled. Two of the second three have been fulfilled. Why will God fulfill the last? Because he is God. Because he is faithful to his covenant. And he will bring the nation of Israel to a mindset of belief, whereby Romans 11 prophesies that a nation shall be saved in a day. I take it a whole generation of Israel will turn to God at that day. And that will demonstrate the mighty power of God. So the covenant structure is the structure throughout the Word of God from the first man, Adam, through Noah, through Abram, through a nation, through the church that will demonstrate that God alone is God to his glory. And that will be a fulfillment of real meaning and purpose in history. God is king, he has a kingdom, he will reclaim the realm of it, and he will redeem the people of it to his own glory. When Jesus Christ, the second Adam, has completed that, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, then he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, that God may be all and in all. The final consummation of the purpose for the earth. So that Israel today is still a people God is using to demonstrate his sovereignty, he will fulfill his promise to them. We'll uh, probably have some questions at the beginning of next hour to relate to that.